Um, so to get started, just kind of review. Looking back to last week, I want to I clarify one thing and correct one thing. So last week, um, we were talking about prevenient grace, that concept of prevenient grace. Um, and off, just kind of off the cuff, I told you that prevenient means universal. That is not true. That's not what prevenient means. Um, prevenient grace is universal, or people who believe in prevenient grace believe that it's universal, that it's given to all people. But the word prevenient doesn't mean uh, universal. The word prevenient means, uh, means something kind of like preceding, like grace that comes before. So it would be grace that comes before uh, salvation, grace that comes before someone is able to to uh, to choose God. Okay, and then the second thing, uh, just uh, by way of clarification, um, I do not believe the Bible teaches prevenient grace. Okay, we were looking last week at a at a specific view of uh, predestination called Arminianism, um, or predestination being um, being uh, conditioned on on God's foreknowledge, and the people who believe that that's how to explain. You know, the, the whole issue here is the Bible says that God is sovereign over salvation, and the Bible says that people make, make real free decisions, and so how, to, how can both of those things be true, right? And one way of trying to explain how both of those things can be true is this idea that God looks into the future, sees uh, the decision people will make, and then predestines them based on that decision, and part of that view is this concept of, of prevenient grace. Um, and there was a little bit of confusion last week, I think, afterwards, I talked to a couple of people um, who were asking more about that and thinking that was a good idea. Um, and there are lots of people that believe that, heroes of mine, uh, really good preachers um, that, I, that I look up to and have learned from that believe that, but I do not believe that. I don't think the Bible teaches that concept. I don't, I don't believe the Bible anywhere says that, that prevenient grace is, is a thing, okay? But that's what it means. So um, as, as we've been doing this study, if you were here the first week, um, you remember we went over four things that we should not say about predestination or four things that we should not believe about predestination. Um, we shouldn't say that we don't believe in it because that word and that concept and that idea is, is in the Bible in several places, so it has to mean something. Um, secondly, uh, we shouldn't say that predestination is divisive or unimportant, um, and, and so we should just kind of not study it, not think about it, not worry about it. Um, there have been people in, in churches who have made the issue of predestination divisive, for sure, um, but, it, but it doesn't have to be. Um, and I made the point that we don't want to overemphasize what the Bible says about predestination. Um, you know, when, when you're here for a Sunday morning sermon, we, we don't talk about predestination every week. We just talk about it whenever it comes up in the passage that's being preached for that week. Um, and so we don't want to make too big a deal about it, but we also don't want to make too small a deal about it, right? We don't want to underemphasize it either. It is in the Bible, and if it's there, that means that God put it there. And if God put it there, he put it there because he thought it was good for us to know and to think about and to, um, and, and, and to, to study, okay? And so we don't want to overemphasize it on one hand. We don't want to underemphasize it on, on the other hand. Um, thirdly, we said that we, uh, we should not say that God only predestines people to service but not to salvation. Again, God does predestine people to service, right? He chose Paul, not Peter, to be the, disciple, the apostle to the Gentiles, right? He chose Abraham, um, not Lot, to be the one that the, the family line of Israel was going to go through, right? He chose Noah, not someone else, to be the one to build the, to build the ark and to, uh, to, to do that. He chose Jonah to be the one to go to Nineveh, not, not someone else. And so the Bible is full of, of examples and places where God chooses certain people to do certain tasks. But the Bible also um, has passages where it talks about God choosing certain people for salvation. And we're going look to at, look at some of those tonight. Um, so we shouldn't say that God predestines people only to service and not to salvation. And then fourthly, uh, we should not say that God predestines people to salvation corporately but not individually. There's some... Um, some traditions that say that God chooses the plan of salvation, um, but he doesn't choose the man of salvation, meaning um, that God chooses that all those who are in Christ will be saved, but God doesn't choose who is, is who's going to be in Christ, right? Um, but the Bible does seem to say that God chooses certain individuals and not others for salvation, okay? So today, last week, we looked at, that, that was the first week, we looked at, uh, talked about those four things. 
Last week, um, we talked about this view that God looks into the future, sees that certain people uh, will choose to believe in Jesus, and then predestines them based on that foreknowledge that he has. And we talked about some strengths of that view. We talked about some weaknesses of that view. Um, and, and, and so tonight, I want to talk about a, another view, a different way of understanding how it is that God uh, is sovereign over salvation and people make choices. How do those two things fit together? Another view is um, that predestination is not, is not conditioned on anything other than God's will, okay? And, and, and we'll get to that. But, but first, I want to go over these, these kind of prerequisites. We talked about these last week as well. Um, some of these are going to be the same as last week. Some of them are going to be a little bit different. So people who, who end up believing that uh, God's sovereignty and human responsibility fit together in this way that we're talking about tonight uh, kind, of, kind of believe these things going in. Number one, people need saving, right? And that was the same thing we said last week. People need saving. People who think God, uh, predestination is conditioned on foreknowledge believe that people need saving. And people who don't think that believe that people need to, to be saved, okay? Um, and, 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 and there's a couple of reasons for this that I want to point out tonight. One of them is from Psalm 51. This is just an, uh, an illustration. There are other passages we could look at, but for the sake of time, just this one. Psalm 51. This is a psalm that David wrote probably after his sin with Bathsheba. You know the story of, of Bathsheba, and then he had the, um, her husband killed in battle, and then there's, a, there's another place in, in the Bible where uh, the prophet Nathan comes to, to David and confronts David about his sin with Bathsheba, and, and David repents of that sin. Um, most, a lot of scholars, most people think that Psalm 51 was written as kind of David's prayer of repentance over the sin with Bathsheba. And if you look at verse 5, he says, uh, look at verse 4. He says, verse 3, he says, um, for I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. He's not denying his sin. He's, he's admitting it. He says, against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you were right when you passed sentence, or when you passed judgment. You were blameless when you judge. And then look at verse 5. He says, indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. So David says he was, he was sinful from the moment of his birth, he even says that he was sinful from the moment of his conception, okay? Some translations say that his mother conceived him in sin, but that's not a reference to her, uh, some, some kind of sinful sexual act that, that she committed, either with someone that was not her husband or anything like that. The reference here is that David himself was sinful from the moment of his conception, from as far back as you can go, um, and, and we could talk about that. That's, a, that's another whole discussion, another whole series on, on sin and how, how, we, how we're born sinful, but the Bible teaches that. And so people who, who, who understand predestination this way um, believe that people are born sinful. And then another reason that people need to be saved is because people are incapable of saving themselves. If anyone's going to be saved, we need God to be the one to, to do it. Okay? And so um, I'm not going to read Ephesians 2, but Ephesians 2, we're, we're pretty familiar with that passage. Some of us, Ephesians 2, 1, 1, 2, and 3, you can read that when you get home. But there Paul says that we were dead in our sins and trespasses before God saved us. We were dead in our sins. Um, dead to the point that we couldn't act, right? We were dead in our sins. Even more explicitly, listen to Romans chapter 8. We read Romans chapter 8 last week. Um, look at this, this specific part of Romans chapter 8 tonight. Uh, Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 6. Paul says... For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on of the spirit is life and peace. For the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit itself to God's law, for it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay? So people are born sinful, people are dead in their sins, people are unable to please God, we're unable to uh, to, to follow his commandments and, and, and to please him. And then look at John chapter 6, the Gospel of John. This is, this is Jesus talking in the Gospel of John chapter 6, starting in verse, um, we want to get down to verse 44. Let's, start, let's just start with verse 43. It says, Jesus answered them, stop complaining among yourselves. Verse 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
Jesus said no one is able to come to God unless the Father draws him, okay? No one can come to God, no one, I'm sorry, no one can come to Jesus unless, and talking to, about coming to him in salvation. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. And then skip down in the same verse down to, to or in the same chapter, down to verse 60. John chapter 6, verse 60. He says, therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? He'd been teaching here about, uh, about the, the Lord's Supper, about the body and the blood, and about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and, and they didn't all understand exactly what he was saying. And so uh, when they heard this, they, they said, this is, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And so Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were complaining about this, asked them. He said, does this, does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The Spirit gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. He says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who would not believe and the one who would betray him. And he said in verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And we, and we read other passages like this in the book of Acts in the early church when it says that, that, that people are repenting and believing. It says as many as have been appointed to, to life believed and repented in, in, in passages like that. But so number one, we believe that people need to be saved because they're born sinful and because they're incapable of, uh, of saving themselves. Secondly, uh, number two there, uh, it's true, or, or the people who, who hold to this posi- position believe that God is sovereign and almighty, sovereign slash almighty, and he is able to save. God is sovereign or almighty, and he is able to save. So still in John chapter 6, let's look up to verse 35. It says, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Verse 37, everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So there seems to be, Jesus seems to be saying that there's a group of people that God has, that God is going to give to Jesus, and all of those that the Father give to him will come to him, Jesus will receive them, and Jesus will raise them up on the last day, right? There's a group that the Father gives to Jesus, and that same group, Jesus will raise them up on the last day, okay? So people need to be saved, number one. God is sovereign and almighty, and he's able to save them, number two. Number three, people make real choices or real decisions. People really do make choices. People really do make decisions, okay? Um, The difference between this view and what we read last week, though, or talked about last week is how, how is that freedom, how does that freedom work? How does that freedom function? Is that freedom completely free or are there some limitations to it, okay? And I, I think the Bible says that there's some limitations to it. First of all, there are, uh, people can only choose what they want to do, right? And you say, well, that's not true. I do things I don't want to do all the time. But that's ultimately not true. Ultimately, you do whatever you want to do in every situation, right? And you say, well, I don't want to go to work tomorrow, but I'm going to have to anyway because my boss makes me, right? And, and what happens is we have a hierarchy of, of wills, hierarchy of desires, right? I don't want to go to work tomorrow, but more than I don't want to go to work tomorrow, I want to prevent myself from getting fired, right? And so I'm going to choose to go to work even though I don't want to because I, I want to make sure I don't get fired more than I want to stay home from work. Does that make sense? So, so when we're making decisions, when we're making, when we're making choices, we, we choose to do whatever we most want to do in, in that situation, okay? Now, our, our wills, our desires are, are limited also. We can only choose to do what we want to do, um, but, there, but there are limits to that, right? If I want to fly to the moon, I can't do that, 
right? They're natural limitations that we have. I don't have wings. I'm not able to fly. Um, apart from a spaceship or something like that, I can't fly to the moon, right? If I want to go to the ocean and hold my breath all the way to the bottom of the ocean, I can't do that, right? Because there are natural limits on the things that we can do. So there, so there are natural limits to our freedom. We're not completely free. We can only do what we want to do. And there, there are natural limits. Even if we want to do certain things, we, we still can't do everything we want to do because of natural limitations. But and here, here's what's important for, for our study tonight. There are those, those natural limitations, but there's also moral limitations. There are also moral limitations, okay? So look at a passage like, um, like look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 20. Romans 6, 20. Paul says, for when you were, he's talking about believers before they were believers. He says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free from allegiance to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things you were now ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. But now, since you have been liberated from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification. And the end is eternal life. Verse 23 that we're all familiar with, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul here talks about someone who's not yet a believer, who's not yet a Christian, who's not yet uh, been transformed, believed in Jesus, repented of their sins. Paul can talk about that person as being enslaved to sin, right? Enslaved to sin. Now, it's not, it's not, it's not enslavement in the sense that we're forced to do something we don't want to do. It's enslavement because we want to sin. And that's all we can do because that's all we want to do. Our whole nature is, uh, is sinful. Everything about us is sinful, right? We're, we're maybe not as sinful as we could be. We could all be worse than we were before we got saved, right? We could all, even someone like Hitler could be, could be worse than he was, right? He was, he was bad. He was really bad. But even he could be worse, um, so, and, and, and so could we. So, so I'm not saying that we're the worst we could possibly be, but I'm saying like every, every part of us, is, is tainted and, and, and affected by sin. Our entire nature, everything about us is affected by sin. And so, every, so all of our desires are also affected and, uh, and, and tainted by sin. Okay? So, uh, so one, people need to be saved, and, and they can't do it themselves. Number two, God is sovereign and almighty and able to save people. Three, people do make real choices, real decisions, but there are limits to that, to, to those choices, limits to that to that freedom. Number four, God has, uh, God has multiple or prioritized desires and goals for creation. Okay? God has, has multiple desires and goals for, for creation. So just like I said before, we might, you, might know, you might not want to go to work tomorrow morning, but you also don't want to get fired. You have both of those desires, and the desire to not get fired outweighs the desire to not go to work, right? Outweighs the desire to stay home. God has, has different, different desires for creation like that as well, okay? And so last week we talked about how the Bible says that God um, wills for all people to be saved, right? God does want all people to be saved. And, and yet this view says there, there, there may be something else that God wants more than he wants all people to be saved, okay? There may be something God wants more than he wants all people to be saved. It's true that he wants all people to be saved, but there may be something else he wants more then he wants all people to be saved, okay? And then number five, I've got prevenient grace on there, and I've got it marked out because this view says there is no such thing as prevenient grace. There's no grace that comes before salvation. Um, God's act in salvation is, 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 is the beginning. There, there's nothing that comes before that. And then number six, God chooses to save some individuals and not others, okay? That, this is the same thing we looked at last week. Uh, God chooses to save some individuals and, and not others. The Bible is just, just clear about that. That's what predestination means, um, and it's not just that God knows who will be saved, it's, it's that, that God does choose who he will save and who he will not save, okay? So those, those six things um, coming into these, these three passages. So let's look at uh, Romans chapter 8. This is the passage we looked at a lot last week. Let's look at Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. So Paul says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Okay, so let's start at the end. And let's look at this, this, um, this sometimes this is called the golden chain. Or look, look, at, look at these words in, in verse 30. Those that he predestined, he also called. And those that he called, he also justified. And those that he justified, he also glorified. Right? So these are the same people, right? It's the same group of people. And at the beginning, he predestined them. At the end, he glorifies them, right? And so this is the same group of people. So whoever it is that God predestines for salvation, whoever it is that, that God chooses to save will be saved in the end, okay? Now, how does he choose them? Well, we talked about this a lot last week. It says that he chose them. Uh, it, it doesn't tell us how he chose them. It says those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he would be like, he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Last week, we said that the people that hold to that view say, see, he, he predestines them because he foreknows them. But that's not what Romans 8 says. It doesn't say he predestined them because he, fore, he foreknew them. It just says he foreknew them and he predestined them, right? It, all it says is that he did both. It doesn't say because he foreknew them, he predestined them. It doesn't say he, bre- he, predestined the one, he predestined them because he foreknew them. It just says he foreknew them and he predestined them. Both, right? Now, the other view says, okay, so that's why he did. He looked to the future and saw and then chose them. But, but Paul doesn't say that explicitly, okay? Paul just says that both of those things are true. And so someone who, who, who views predestination as, as not conditioned on anything other than God's will would look at this passage and say, see, he doesn't say that he chose them because he foreknew them. It just says he chose them and he foreknew them. And it doesn't say that he foreknew things about them. It doesn't say he foreknew that they were going to believe. It doesn't say he foreknew that they were going to repent of their sins. It doesn't say he foreknew that they were going to turn to Jesus. It just says he foreknew them, Right? And, and so this is the same group that Jesus talked about in John 6, where the father has this group of people that he's going to give to the son, and the son's going to raise him up on the last day. This, the father has this group of people that he foreknows, and he's going to give it to the son, and the son is going to, or he's going to give them to the son, and then the son's going to glorify them in the last day. Okay? Okay. I think I have on number two on your sheet, Romans 9, and then number three, Ephesians 1. But let's, let's go to Ephesians 1 first, because Romans 9 is going to take a little bit longer. So we'll end, we'll end in Romans 9, okay? So let's turn to Ephesians 1. So there's this group of people that God predestined and that he foreknew. But we still don't know why he predestined them. He hasn't told us that in Romans 8. Let's look at Ephesians 1. There's a couple things that he says over and over and over here in Ephesians 1. And, uh, and Josh Green pointed this out already in his prayer as he, was, uh, as he read this passage to, to call us to worship tonight. Look at, verse, look at verse 4. He says, uh, well, I'll start in verse 3. We'll read the whole thing. He says, Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the, hev- in, in the heavens or in the heavenly places. Verse 4 says, For he chose us in him, So he is the Father. God the Father chose us in him, Jesus. God the Father chose us in the Son before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and will to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. So here, Paul does tell us the purpose. Paul says the reason that God predestined a certain group of people was to praise his glory and grace, to be a testimony to, to, to the praise of his glory and grace, right? People would see a group of people that are saved and we would glorify God because we know that those people can't save themselves, right? We've already started with that. We know those people need saving and we know those people can't save themselves. And so the fact that they're saved is a testament to God's glory and grace, so he predestined them before the foundation of the world in verse 4, according to the, to the good pleasure of his will in verse 5, to the praise of his glory and grace in verse 6. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. We have redemption in him through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. That's how he did it, by his grace. 
that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Verse 9, here's why he did it. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he planned in him. So here, Paul says that God did it because of his own good pleasure, right? That, that may not be satisfying to us, right? Because he's not explaining the details of why God did it, but it says God did it for his own purposes. God did it, basically it says God did it because he wanted to. God did it because that was his will. That was his decision. That's what he wanted to do. Now he's going to give us a little bit more uh, in, 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 verse, in chapter 9 of Romans and a little bit less in chapter 9 of Romans both. But here he says he did it for uh, according to, the, to, to his good pleasure, according to the pleasure of his will. Verse 11, it says, We have also received an inheritance in him, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. Again, he's predestining people. He's choosing people. He doesn't really say why. He says for uh, or, or because of in agreement with the decision of his will. Verse 12, the reason why, so that we who had already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to his glory. Okay, so again, God's doing it according to his will, and one of the reasons he's doing it is to the praise of his glory and grace, right? So one of the things that, that it seems like the Bible is saying, one of the things that God wants more than he wants all people to be saved is he wants his glory and his grace to be on display. He wants his glory and his grace to be on display, okay? And we might say, we, we might have some things to say about that, but, uh, but we'll leave that for, for the question time or, or for next week, um, but ultimately, I, I will say that that's, it's good for us to see God's glory and God's grace. And so God is choosing to save some for the demonstration of his glory and his grace. Okay? So Romans 8 says that, that he foreknew a group, and that group that he foreknew, he also glorifies. That group that he predestined, he also glorified. Uh, Ephesians 1 says he did it, because that was his will. That's what he wanted to do. It was, it was his will to do that according to the good purpose of his will. And he did it to the, to the glory and, and praise of his grace. Or to the praise of his glory and grace. Okay? Romans 9. We're going to start in verse 1 and we're going to try to get all the way down to verse 29 of Romans 9. Okay? So the first thing we see in Romans 9 is, is, is in verses 1 through 5. This is, this is the problem uh, that, that, that Romans 9 is trying to answer. Okay? So if you know much about the book of Romans, Paul's been going all the way from, from, uh, from Romans 1 all the way to Romans 8 now, talking about um, the plan that God had, how God has, uh, has saved people by faith. Uh, we're talking about Abraham there in chapter 5. Um, he goes on to talk about how the, the Holy Spirit comes and transforms us in, in chapter 6. Um, we just read chapter, chapter 8, and so now we get to the beginning of, of chapter 9, and, and Paul writes this in the first five verses. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience is testifying to me with the Holy Spirit that I have intense sorrow and continual anguish in my heart. For I could almost wish to be cursed and cut off from the Messiah for the benefit of my brothers, my own flesh and blood. Right? So Paul is saying... There's, there's a, there, I could almost wish that I wasn't saved if that would mean that my brothers would be saved, okay? That's not all that he's saying, but that's, he is saying that, right? Verse 4, he says, They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises. The ancestors are theirs. And from them, by physical descent, came the Messiah, who is God over all, praise forever. Amen. So here's the big problem that Paul's dealing with. There's really two things going on. One of them is, like I've already said, he, he loves the Israelites. He is an Israelite, right? And so he wants the Jewish people to be saved T to the point where he would, he would say, if possible, I would even maybe give up my own salvation if that meant that, that my Jewish brothers and sisters would be saved. There's, that's part of what's going on. That's kind of the surface level, right? But there's something way bigger underneath that. The bigger problem of Romans 9 is what, what Josh mentioned this morning in the sermon, what we've already talked about a little bit tonight, how, is God keeping his promises? We've talked about how God doesn't change, right? All th things change in life all the time, but God doesn't change. God's constant. God's the same. In, at the beginning of Romans 9, what Paul is saying is it looks like God has changed. 
it looks like God's not keeping his promise. Remember, God made a promise to Abraham that he was going to give him this great nation, right? God made a promise to Abraham that he was going to be his people and God was going to be his God, right? God made a promise to Abraham that kings were going to come from him. And if we follow that through the Old Testament, we know what happens, right? They go to Egypt and they get enslaved there and God's faithful and gets them out of slavery. And then they sin, but God doesn't turn his back on them. He, keeps, he, he stays faithful to them. There's punishment that comes, there's judgment that comes, but God's faithfulness stays on them. And eventually they make it into the promised land. And then eventually they do get a king, Saul. And he's king for, for a short time. And then David becomes king. And David this, is this great king, right? There's, there's flaws, he's not perfect, but he is a good king of, of the people of Israel. And, and, and everybody's rejoicing because God's keeping his promises, right? But David dies. And then his son Solomon becomes king. And then Solomon dies, and the kingdom gets split in half. And, and, and we have the prophets writing, and, and they're calling the people back because they're turning away from God. And, and then they go off into, uh, into um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Into, uh, in, into exile, right? They go off into exile. There is no more kingdom of Israel. It's gone. And so we're looking and saying, but God promised Abraham he was going to have a king on the throne or he would, that kings were going to come from him. He had this great nation. God promised David that he would have a king on the throne forever. But now we're in Rome and it's, you know, first, first second, third uh, centuries AD and on into the 60s or whatever it is whenever Paul wrote this letter. It's almost 100 years in, into, the, into, uh, into AD now. And, and it looks like God's not doing what he said he was going to do. How is it that God's not doing what he said he was going to do? That's, that's the problem that's underneath this. The surface level is the Jews have turned away from God, right? And Paul says even he, he would give up what he has if, if that would bring the Jews back to God. That's the surface level. But underneath that is it looks like God has turned away from Israel. Not just the Jews have turned away from God, but it looks like God's turned away from them. And God's not keeping the promises he made. And so let's look at, look at verse 6. This is the, the answer and the solution to this problem, that it looks like God's not keeping his promises, but here's, why, here's how we know that he really is keeping his promises. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. It's not as though God's not keeping his promises. He really is. It may look like he's not, but let me guarantee you, Paul says, let me start off right here in verse 6, he absolutely is keeping his promises. It's not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. On the contrary, he says, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, verse 8, it's not the children of physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but also Rebecca received a promise when she became pregnant by one man, our ancestor Isaac. So he's tracing through the history of Israel here, right? And look at verse 11. For though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election, predestination we might say, might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she, uh, she was told the older Will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Okay, so here's what, here's what Paul's saying. Paul says, it's not, it's not true that God's not keeping his promises. It's not true that God's word has failed. God is doing exactly what he said he was going to do. What's true is we misunderstood what God was doing. We thought God was building this physical kingdom, right? And Israel was going to be this great nation forever. And, and that's, not what God, that, that, that's not what God's doing. God's building a spiritual kingdom. And the spiritual kingdom is going to be forever. And there is going to be a king on David's throne forever. Jesus, right? And there are going to be members of this kingdom forever. But those members are not traced through Isaac or through Jacob. Those, those, those members are not traced through, through physical descent, I should say. They're not Abraham's descendants just because they're great, 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 great grandsons of Abraham, right? People are grafted into, as we're going to see in chapter 11, we're not going to read there, but people are grafted into, people become or adopted into that promise because of faith, because of believing in Jesus. So when we believe in Jesus, when someone believes in Jesus, that person becomes a descendant of Abraham. 
that person becomes a descendant of the promise that God made to Abraham. It's not that God's not keeping his promises. God absolutely is keeping his promises. He's doing exactly what he said he was going to do. It's that we misunderstood exactly what the promise was and how that promise was going to be fulfilled. Okay? Now, on first reading, there, there's, there's that other verse in there that I'm trying to kind of ignore right now because it's really, really hard um, and we don't have time to deal fully with it tonight. If you have questions, I'm sure everybody has questions about that, where, where he says there in verse 13, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, right? Um, I would love for you to ask any question you have about that next week for uh, Matt or Jake or, uh, or uh, Josh or me or whoever's up here, right? Because um, that would get us in, into more, we can't, we can't spend enough time specifically on that one verse. We gotta look at the whole topic tonight. Um, so, uh, but, but thinking this way makes us, uh, I mean, our natural response is this doesn't seem fair, right? He says before they'd done anything, Jacob or Esau, before they'd done anything good or bad, God decided to bless Jacob and curse Esau. Not that they had done based simply on God's choice, right? It says so in verse, uh, verse 11, before they had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand. God's got a purpose that he has in mind that he's working out and he's predestining people, electing certain people to fulfill this purpose. Not from works, but from the one who calls. And we might say, well, that seems unfair. Well, Paul addresses that. Let's keep reading. Verse 14. Verse 14, he says, what should we say then? Is there injustice with God? That's the question we have in our mind, right? Is God doing something that's not right? Is God doing something that's not fair? God, God doing something that's not just? Paul says, absolutely not. And he quotes some Old Testament here. He says, because God tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God doesn't change. God's the same here in Romans 9 as he was back in, uh, back in Exodus or, or wherever that was that, that God says it. I think it's Exodus, Right? God's the same here in Romans as he was back in Exodus. God told Moses, I'm going to show mercy on whom I want to show mercy. And I'm going to have compassion on whom I want to have compassion. So then, verse 16, it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. Remember, remember what happened with Pharaoh. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, verse 18 he shows mercy to those he wants to, and he hardens those he wants to harden. So we say this is not fair, but Paul says we shouldn't say that. We shouldn't say God's doing something wrong here at all. Because remember who God is. God is God. God is the creator of the universe. He's going to get even more detail than that in a second. God's the creator of the universe. God does what he wants to do. God's merciful toward who he wants to be merciful for, toward. He's compassionate toward who he wants to be compassionate toward. And he hardens those that he wants to harden. Right? God doesn't have to be merciful toward anybody. And, and, and think, about, think about this for a second. I, I, I heard someone explain it this way before. When we're talking about this, there's some people who get judgment, right? And there's some people who get salvation. Well, the people who get judgment, they get justice. Right? If God punishes me for my sins, that's just. Because I'm in my sins and, and, and my sins deserve punishment. If God punishes me for my sins, I, I, I get justice, right? If God saves me, I get mercy, compassion. Nobody gets injustice, right? Nobody gets anything that's not fair. And, and when, when we read passages like this, sometimes our, sometimes our, our, our notion is to ask, how could, how could God judge somebody? The question we should be asking is, how could God be merciful toward anybody? How could God be compassionate toward any of these people? How could God be compassionate toward me? How could God be merciful toward me? Right? The easy answer is, how can God judge my sin? Because that, that's what my sin deserves. The hard question, and it really is a hard question. Paul spends a whole lot of time in Romans 3 trying to answer it, because it's a really, really hard question. How can God be merciful toward a sinner? to the point to where in Romans 3, Paul has to talk about how God can, can justify someone, how God can forgive someone of their sins and still be God. That's how hard it is. 
And, and so, we, so we shouldn't, we shouldn't ask how, how, how is it that God is just towards some people? We should ask how is it that God's merciful towards some people? And, and he gives us somewhat of an explanation. It's not really going to satisfy us, I don't think. But he gives us somewhat of an explanation if we keep going. In verse 19, he, he, he anticipates what we're going to say. He says, you will say to me then, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will, right? Why does God judge Pharaoh? God hardened Pharaoh. Why does God judge someone who's not believing in Jesus? Is that, as we've already seen, the will is enslaved to sin and someone can't believe in Jesus unless their will is broken. How is it that God still finds fault? Paul's not immune to this. I mean, Paul sees these questions himself. But look at his answer, verse 19. You will say to me then, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Verse 20 says, but who are you, a mere man to talk back to God? Paul's answer, we may not be happy with it, we may not be fully satisfied with it, but Paul's answer is, you don't have the right to ask God that question. You don't have the right to demand God give you an account of what he does. It's good enough for you to trust that God is good and loving and kind and merciful and gracious and righteous and just and holy and that everything he does are those things. We We don't have a right to challenge God. Verse 20, but who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Well, what is formed? Say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God, desiring to display his wrath to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath ready for destruction? Think, think for a minute about Adam and Eve, right? Remember God told Adam and Eve that when you eat from the tree, you're going you're gonna to die? And yet God was patient with them, right? They, they didn't die right away. Now, we don't know if they were saved or not, and that's a whole other discussion for a whole other night. But God said they were going to die. He could have he struck them both dead right then, right? He could have ended the whole project of creation. But he didn't. He was patient with them. He allowed them to live many, we assume, many more years. Many, they had many kids, many generations after them. They saw grandkids and great-grandkids from, from what we can tell by the genealogies, Right? And so God was patient with them. And think about how patient God's been with, with us, right? I'm, I'm longing for Jesus to come back. I, I would love it if Jesus comes back tomorrow, right? But I'm glad that, that he was patient until after 1997 because if he'd come back in 1996, I would have gone to hell, right? And he, and he could have. It would have been just for God to judge sins in 1996 just as much as it would be just for God to judge sins in 2020. But, but God's patient. He doesn't have to be, but he is. He's patient with his creation. And, and God is the creator. He has the right to do what he wants to with his creation. If I, if I write a poem, if I write a story, if I paint a picture, if I take a picture with a camera, and, and all that stuff is trademarked, I can do, or copyrighted, I can do whatever I want to with it. I can use it for whatever purpose I want to use it for. I can sell it to whoever I want to sell it to. I can destroy it if I want to destroy it. I can, I can do whatever I want to with it because I'm the one that created it. And and this is what Paul's saying about God here. God is the potter who makes what he wants to from his clay. He makes what he wants to. And and, and he does what he wants to with it. Where are we? Verse 22. What if God desiring to display his wrath to make his power known and do with much patience objects of wrath ready for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory? Right? Again, this is what Paul says in Ephesians 1, that God's, this whole purpose God has in the election is to display the riches of his glory. And he did that. He, he, he did this to make known the riches of his glory on, on objects of mercy that he prepared before him for glory on us, the ones that he called, not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. So this is the explanation we get. It's, it's not, not necessarily something that we're satisfied with. Maybe we'd like for God to explain himself and tell us exactly why he's doing what he's doing, but, but we don't see everything. We don't get to know everything. God doesn't tell us everything. But we, but we do need to believe what he has told us, right? You may have heard before someone talk about uh, a tapestry, like a, like, a, like a blanket or like a wall tapestry that's where you look at it and there's a big picture, right, sewn in, you know what I'm saying? Um, if you look at the back of it, it doesn't make sense, right? It's just threads going everywhere and tied up everywhere, and it, 
you have no idea what's going on. But when you look at the front of it and you see clearly what the pattern was, what the reason was, why those things are done that way, it, it makes a picture. And you can see exactly what's happening. And, and God's will is kind of that way. He's revealed some of it to us. He hasn't revealed all of it to us. But, but we, we trust him in what he has revealed. And, and then we see in verse 25 that this is, you know, not only is God not, not only is God's word not failing, but, but just like we've been talking about this morning and earlier tonight, God is exactly the same as he always has been. And, and, and look at the, he, he quotes three passages here from the Old Testament where he's saying this is what God's doing. Verse 25, he says, as he also says in Hosea, I will call not my people, my people. And she who is unloved, beloved. He's talking here about how he's going to bring the Gentile people into his kingdom. A people who is not his people, he's going to adopt into his family. And Verse 26, it will be in the place where they were told, you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. And not, not just Gentile people, but also Jewish people that have turned away and, and, and rejected God and, re, and rebelled against him. Verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of Israel's sons is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved, right? Again, not all of Abraham's children are Abraham's children. Not all of Abraham's children are the, the, the children of promise that Paul talks about, that God talks about, right? But there's a remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his sentence completely and decisively on, on the earth. And then 29, verse 29, just as Isaiah has predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we'd have become like Sodom. We'd have obeyed like, like Gomorrah. If you don't know those references, Sodom and Gomorrah were two sinful cities in the Old Testament that were completely wiped out. And he says, he's saying here, if, if it weren't for God raising up a remnant, if it wasn't for God providing offspring, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. So that's, that's kind of hard, but I think that's what the, the Bible says. And, and if we think about it, and, and we'll have some time to ask a lot of questions next week, I think we're going to see that it's, it, it, on one hand, it is hard and, and, and serious. On the other hand, though, it's also good and um, encouraging and foundation-laying and um, g gives us a hope. So, so real, real quickly, I'm just going to read over these real, real fast on, on the back of your sheet there. We've got strength and weaknesses of, of this view. Again, not everybody believes this is how God's sovereignty and, and our responsibility fit together. But some strengths here. Number one, um, it seeks to take the whole Bible for what it says, no matter what. Seeks to take the whole Bible for what it says, no matter what. Even, even the sections like we've read tonight that are, that are difficult. It seeks to, to take the whole Bible for what it says, no matter what. Number two, um, it gives us confidence that God has a plan and a purpose in the world. God's not just reacting, but he's actually, you know, God, God is, is providential and he's, he's, he's guiding history somewhere. And so God, it gives us confidence that God has a plan and a purpose in the world. Number three, it provides a foundation and assurance in evangelism and missions. It gives us a uh, foundation and assurance in evangelism and missions. We may talk about this more next week, but, but it, if God is the one who saves people, then that gives us encouragement. It gives us boldness. It, it should give us assurance as we go to share the gospel with people, knowing that, that someone's salvation is not dependent on how well we present the gospel, how good of an argument we make. We want to present the gospel well, and we want to make good arguments, and we want to answer people's questions in, in, a, good, in a good way. But we know that ultimately the Holy Spirit is the one, God is the one who, who converts people, using us in, in that. Number four, um, it stresses God's glory and God's grace. It's very much centered on God. Everything in, in this view is about God. Um, number five, it gives us confidence in enduring to the end. If God is the one that, that begins salvation from the very beginning, and those who are predestined are the same group that's, that's glorified, the group that the Father gives to the Son is the same group that the Son raises up on the last day, then it, it gives us confidence that, that if, if God has saved us, that we will endure to, to the end. We don't have to worry about whether we're going uh, to fall away or, or not. Some weaknesses, though, um, at, least, at least four here. There, there are probably more. There are probably more, more strengths, too. But, but weaknesses, number one, uh, some people may ask, if this, is, if, if this is true, then what's the point of evangelism or missions or prayer, Right? 
I think there's answers to all these questions, but if this is true, then what's the point of evangelism? If God already knows who's going to be saved and has already planned for certain people to be saved, then what's the point of praying? What's the point of evangelism? What's the point of missions? Um, Number two, um, what about the passages that say that God wants all people to be saved? We saw last, last week there are several passages like that. And, and so if, if this is how we understand God's sovereignty and, and responsibility, this is how we understand predestination, then we have to be able to explain these passages where, where it talks about God wanting all people to be saved. Um, number three, it, this just doesn't seem fair. At least on, on, on the surface, it doesn't, doesn't seem fair. And then number four, um, do people really have a choice? Do people really have a choice? If, if God's the one that, that chooses, if, if, if we're only able to sin and, and we can't do anything else unless God changes our hearts, then, then do people really have a choice in, in the end? Okay, those are, those are four witnesses. There may be more, but those, are, I mean, there are more, I'm sure, but those are four. There are, are other challenges that people would give to this view. Um, so we're 10 minutes past seven. Um, but I, I do want to have just a short time if there's any questions. Um, we can't take a lot of time, can't take a lot of questions. Remember, next week we will have the whole time for questions. Um, so if you have just general questions about this topic or about something we've talked about before that's come to you, maybe save that for next week. But anything specifically about what I, what I said tonight, anything that, wasn't, that was confusing or wasn't clear. Everybody ready to go? All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you um, for the easy parts, and we thank you for the hard parts. And God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would give us uh, wisdom and, and, and open our eyes to understand your word. God, I pray that you would help us to believe what your word says, even when we don't necessarily like what it says, even when it's not something that, that we would have said, even if it's something that, that maybe we would have said different. God, help us to, to believe your word, to trust in your word, uh, even when we, when we don't fully understand how something it says could be true. And God, help us to trust in you. Help us to believe that you are good and that you are good for us and that you work good to us. And God, I thank you for, for our church. I thank you that you have saved us. God, I thank you that when we were dead in our sins, you called us to life. Thank you that when we were uh, rebels against your will, running away from you as fast as we could, you reached down and turned us around and brought us to yourself. God, we thank you that right now you are holding us tightly and we have confidence in your salvation knowing that you are holding us fast even as we sing. God, we thank you for Jesus, our Savior. God, we thank you that he came and gave his life for the purpose of saving us and glorifying you. God, I pray you would help us to see your glory in that and see your glory in all things. And Father, help us to be people who who emit your, your glory, who shine as your trophies, as as Ephesians 2 says, that others might see the work that you've done in us, and that through that, Father, you might draw them to yourself as well. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.